Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. Thanks to the Weird Studies Reddit and Discord fan communities, I am getting to know a little better what our fans are like, and I have discovered that they are off-puttingly erudite and clever. This makes me uneasy. Such people are not easy to fool, at least not for long. The moment of my unmasking as a fraud draws ever closer. Anyway... One such irritatingly intelligent listener noted that all this time, J.F. and I have been calling the decadent Welsh mystic who wrote The White People, Arthur Machen, rhymes with Poppin and Lachen. But our listener said it's more like Machen, so okay, I want to mention Machen's notion of ecstasy, which we discussed at length in episode 87, mostly in the context of Machen's aesthetic treatise Hieroglyphics. Ecstasy is a somewhat elusive quality, or perhaps simply eludes definition. It is the ne plus ultra of art for Mackin, the thing without which writing is mere words on the page, soulless, trivial, and unable to outlive its own day. A true work of art can take place as easily in 70s suburbia as in Valhalla, but regardless of the era in which it's set, the true artwork always dwells in some eternal place. In that place, Odysseus is always blinding the Cyclops, Stackley is always killing a man for his hat, and Roy Batty tells us again and again that all these moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. In this place, we find ecstasy. I should note, though, that ecstasy can be a lot less fun than it sounds. Case in point, a short novel by Doris Lessing called The Fifth Child, it takes place in the London suburbs of the 1970s and early 80s, but its story, told in the barest of outlines, sounds like some terrible northern myth. A man and woman marry and fill their big house with four beautiful children. But some curse falls upon their household, and the woman begets a goblin, the fifth child. The kind-hearted parents name the goblin Ben and try to raise him as a human boy, but he is a blind force of violence injuring children, killing pets, and eventually destroying a happy home and loving family. He finally goes off into the world, and perhaps he's out there still, a little storm of chaos that blows into innocent lives as destructively and indifferently as a tornado or some other act of God. That's what Ben is, an act of God, but the kind that makes you ask, what kind of God made you? The Fifth Child is not an especially pleasant tale. It is a work of horror, fueled by the taboo possibility that a perfectly normal, loving parent, someone like you or me, anyone, might hate their child. Not the sort of thing I particularly enjoy contemplating, speaking as the loving father of two little goblins. But as we discuss in this episode, those dark places in the human soul exist, however uncomfortable that makes us feel. Those places exist, and have always existed. That mythic eternity in which Siegfried is forever killing the dragon 
is also the eternity in which Medea is forever killing her own children. The fifth child dwells in the same place and is possessed of the same fierce ecstasy. Speaking of fierce ecstasy, Pierre-Yves Martel is the extraordinary multi-instrumentalist and composer who writes and performs the music you hear every week on Weird Studies. He recently released an album, Weird Studies, Music from the Podcast, Volume 1, the title of which might lead you to conclude, erroneously, that it's just a collection of music beds played on the show. To be sure, some of the music got its start on the show, but in his new album, Pierre-Yves has built them up from sketches to fully realized works, filling out the sound with organetto, drums, reeds, tuba, and singing bowl. There are also several entirely new pieces that carry that distinctive Weird Studies vibe. So what are you waiting for? Google Weird Studies Volume 1 and buy one for your kids today. Okay, on with the show. Lessing. She's one of those authors who are very hard to categorize, very hard to put in a, a specific place. She kind of just, she's just off on her own in the modern English lit scene. Do you agree with that? I confess that I have not read anything like a representative selection of her works. I read Shikasta, which is the first volume of her Canopus and Argos series, which marked, so far as I can tell, a major swerve in her output. There was a whole earlier part of her career where she was a communist and yeah. and and then she wasn't, but she was still writing realistic fiction and then she became a Sufi. I don't know if because she became a Sufi, she started writing speculative fiction or if those were two unrelated developments. But in any event, my impression is that it was a life with a couple of major swerves and I certainly have never followed her through those swerves. The Fifth Child is the book that we're doing today. I read this book as an undergrad. I took a class in Gothic literature, and the professor was wise enough to include this book as the kind of the final, the last book we read, as the kind of the final fruit, the final fruition of the Gothic for her was this book. Huh. So that I read it in that context. So you you can imagine how pleased and also kind of confused I would have been reading this book as a Gothic book, but it partakes of the Gothic tradition, but in a very strange way. You know, I used to have this theory about the line, like works of fiction, whether they're films or novels, whether the author had drawn a line somewhere that would separate the real from the imaginary or even mm. the, the other world from this world. I loved fiction that right. doesn't have a line in it between these things, that doesn't have a metaphysical line between. Oh, yeah. For instance, Little Big is a, a book with no line. Perfect example. And Naked Lunch is a book with no line. But there are also other ones. Um, I'm not going to try to think of them now, but Doris Lessing, her book, The Fifth Child, is definitely one of those books where it's very hard to know what the hell is going on in this book. And that's not to say that it's written in a... Uh, an obscure style at all. It's 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 far as from straightforward it. as you could want any book to be. And it's precisely because of that, because she's just telling a story that the strange elements become so strange. 
Yeah, it's a very English kind of diction. And it has often been said, for example, about M.R. James, that the spooks in M.R. James's stories are all the spookier for being rendered in this sort of impeccably turned English, as in British, style yeah. of prose, a stiff upper lip prose. Prose that itself is not expressive. It's not that it's inexpressive. It's just you're not trying to express stuff. You are just telling us about it and showing it to us and letting that work its way upon yeah. our imagination. You know, you know the old saw about how the Inuit have like 60 words for snow? Right. I've always thought the British have 60 words for ghosts. Like, <laughs> it's true, too, you know, from Spectre, Wraith, White. It goes on and on, the Phantom. Like, it's just because English is such a kind of what's the word, syncretic language. It borrows from all over the place. The, the shadings that exist in the British conception of what the ghost world is like, it's pretty subtle. There's a lot of different types of ghosts. And also, it's you're right. It's the way that M.R. James just kind of like describes the ghost like he just described the grandfather clock <laughs> you know it's just kind of all right. on the same plane there's no line there's no there's yeah no, yeah yeah no line. no line and she does the same in this in this book although here it's not a ghost it's a goblin i do like a good goblin i love me a good goblin yeah none of goblins i've said this for years that we need some new monsters monsters in movies they go and phases. So for a while, for a long time, felt like forever, we were stuck in an endless loop of zombie oh, God, shows. Yeah. And I don't like zombies that much. I mean, like... I'm so uninterested in zombies. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, what about vampires? And, 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 and vampires also are a little played out. Well, because people turn them into sexy vampires. And so now it's just for people to imagine that the vampires, it's sort of killing you, but it's sort of getting it on with you. Yeah, I'm not know. totally it against just doesn't, that. That doesn't, I, I, yeah. that doesn't trigger anything in my imagination. It's not my thing. I don't disapprove of it. It's just not my thing. And it feels played at this point. It is played. Twilight certainly played that out. <laughs> they just put an end to that. Um, Sexy vampires. There's, uh, I have a special place in my heart for Anne Rice. I really enjoyed Interview with the Vampire and Vampire Lestat. Mm, never read it. She kind of created, I think, that or reinvented the vampire in that goth modern idiom. And I, I, and I like that. My point is that goblins. But goblins, yeah. Goblins. We need more movies about goblins. We need TV shows about goblins, books about goblins. We just need more goblins in our life. One reason to watch Hellier. Yeah, well, I, mean, I was, I kept as hoping we all know, to see the there's goblins. There's no goblins. Yeah, there's no goblins. Hashtag no goblins, but nevertheless, there's goblins. Yeah, and I guess the kind of, um, the dark precursor of this book, I, I, I kind of trace this book back to Mackin's work. Mackin, 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 why can't I get it through my head? Mm. I don't know if Lessing was aware of Arthur Mackin. I suspect that she was. Mackin. But Mackin was really big on the idea of the- Mackin ancient species of human-like creatures that it was still around, still kind of hidden under the earth or... Um, Chuds. Yeah. There's a story he wrote called The Novel of the Black Seal, which is all about that. These... Well, there's a whole tradition in esoteric thought about like the hollow world and the people who live inside the hollow world. Yes. Secret Life of Puppets goes into that. Mm -hmm. 
this book that I've got sitting over here. The Darrow, they were called in the, the hollow world theory. The Darrow. Right. That's right. The Darrow. What about this goblin? Tell me about this particular goblin. Not a goblin from the center of the earth, but a goblin in suburban London, a completely ordinary, in fact, almost bombastically ordinary domestic set up within which this strange creature emerges. Let's summarize the book because it's fairly straightforward, right? Let's. The Fifth Child is the story of a couple, David and Harriet. It starts off in the late 60s in that the kind of the orgiastic heights of the 60s, right? The sexual revolution right. getting underway and all that. And you have these two people who meet, Harriet and David. They meet in an office party and they find that they have a lot in common. Specifically, they have an ideal life. And a dream that they share, which is a dream that has become rather unfashionable in their generation. The dream of living in a big house in the suburbs. She would stay home. He would work. They would raise a big family, have big family parties, people coming from all over in their big old house and um, just kind of live out their lives and shut out what's referred to at one point as the news with a capital N. Shut out the external world. Just basically just have their own little ecosystem, their own little garden of delights where they could live out their family life. I have to say that the way that they talk about this dream, that this dream they, they share is something that I found very, um, I don't know, I kind of found myself just kind of digging their, their audacity. Absolutely. In fact, when I started this book, it's painted in such beautiful colors mm -hmm. and you know what's going to happen. You know that it's all going to go to shit. You know, I read the summary of the book ahead of time. I knew what was going to happen. And you're like, oh, no, a beautiful dream destined to be destroyed. It reminds me of a kid like Doris Lessing as a kid just smashing her toys together. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> or like building this huge like skyscraper out of blocks and then just smashing it all to the ground. Yeah. Uh, because she really sets up something beautiful in order to destroy it. There is some foreshadowing right on page 10, which is basically the one, two, three, the fourth page of the story. She's talking about Harriet because the, the real protagonist is Harriet, the woman. She's talking about the fact that Harriet is a virgin, even though she's in her, I guess, mid to late 20s, mid 20s. She's a virgin, unlike any of her friends. And um, Lessing writes about how other people judged her for that. We read, with the same chilly contempt that good women of her grandmother's generation might have used, saying, she's quite immoral, you know, or she's no better than she ought to be, or she hasn't got a moral to her name. Then, in her mother's generation, she's man-mad or she's a nympho. So did the enlightened girls of now say to each other, it must be something in her childhood that's made her like this poor thing. She's basically saying that the sexual mores have just been reversed. Whereas before a woman was expected to behave a certain way sexually, now the pressure was in the opposite direction. And because she, she wanted something that belonged to an earlier generation, now she's the outsider. And there is this weird thing, this kind of prescient thing that Lessing is doing here. She's showing us conservatism kind of small C conservatism as a kind of revolutionary act in the, the, right. the ethos of the 60s and what came after. This is not how one lives anymore. And they are playing with fire right. by embracing this now verboten yeah. or obsolete lifestyle. Which their family reminds them constantly early in the book, actually before Ben, this goblin child is born to them, their fifth child. 
even before that, there are long scenes of Harriet and David talking to brothers and sisters and brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law and parents and their extended family and everybody being really mean to them, (laughs) like being really mean to them about their choices and just like. Yeah, but while taking full advantage of the big house and the hospitality, but always kind of judging them. Right. One of the strong themes in this book is this idea of, we just finished an extra talking about the inside versus the outside, of how they want to live their lives between them, how they want to live their marriage and their family life, and how the world kind of tries to stop them from doing that through judgment, through criticism. And so they're kind of besieged from the start in a weird way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Perhaps their sin is only that they try too hard to keep the world out. I mean, that's an old, old fictional trope. In fact, calling it a trope is to say too little. Not only of fiction, but it's a trope of reality that what you deny, what you repress will come back as a shadow. If you try to castellate yourself completely, I mean, there's always a breach, right? There's always a way in. And nature or the outside, the great outside of the capital O will find its way in no matter what you do. Yeah. And they, yeah. Which is precisely what happens. Precisely what happens. So the story is quite simple. They buy this big old house they can barely afford. I think David's parents help them pay the house. They take care of part of the mortgage or something. And then they start to to reproduce. So they have four children. And of course, she, she doesn't make it look like it's all honky-dory. I mean, it's hard for Harriet to have child after child. And, you know, David has to work really hard to pay for the house. And there's there's a kind of dance or oscillation between the, the pleasures of this life they've chosen, but also the challenges that come with it and the difficulties that come with it. But then everything changes when she gets pregnant the fifth time. That pregnancy is hell for her a painful, horrible experience. Completely different from the previous ones. Beginning with the fact that she can't even figure out how the child was conceived. There are hints that this might be a case of parthenogenesis here, that she might have, because she's like, <laughs> yeah. how can I be pregnant again? That That's impossible. And uh, this is never resolved, but there's the possibility that this child might not even be hers really might be just kind of an alien invasion, or at least that's how she feels. There's a great passage here I'll read. And feels it from the beginning that from the moment Ben, which is the child's eventual name, starts to kick in the womb, it's not just like typical little baby kicks. It's just like savage punching and kicking, just this fierce, relentless, remorseless violence done on the inside of her body. Here on page 52, we read, time passed. It did pass, though she was held in an order of time different from those around her. And not the pregnant woman's time either, which is slow, a calendar of the growth of the hidden being. Her time was endurance, containing pain, Phantoms and chimeras inhabited her brain. She would think, when the scientists make experiments welding two kinds of animal together, of different sizes, then I suppose this is what the poor mother feels. She imagined pathetic botched creatures, horribly real to her, the products of a great Dane or a borzoi with a little spaniel, a lion and a dog, a great cart horse and a little donkey, a tiger and a goat. Sometimes she believed hooves were cutting her tender inside flesh, sometimes claws. So the hooves and the claws, intimations of a demon kind of growing inside her. Right. And 
this is where there's kind of a real wedge that's driven between Harriet and her family, and specifically between Harriet and David, who's like basically just encouraging her to soldier on, doesn't see what's different. From the outside, it just looks like she's having a rough pregnancy. Oh, it's her fifth child. She's, you know, she's worn out. But from the inside, from Harriet's perspective, there's something very, very wrong happening. This is not like the other pregnancies at all. And she knows it, but nobody else believes her. They just think it's all her, right? And it's the curse of the mother in general. So, yeah, so she does a great job of recounting the experience of a really tough pregnancy. And of course, we can say, oh, that's because there's a goblin growing in her womb. But at the same time, this type of pregnancy is something that happens in the real world, really difficult pregnancies. It can be very hard on on the women. I mean, I can't, of course, can't speak from experience. But uh, And my wife had very easy pregnancies, but uh, that doesn't mean she didn't give birth to one goblin. <laughs> <laughs> You need to explain we'll get, that. Let's get back to it. I, I just that, want to. F- that feels like it. Yeah. Okay. We'll, 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 we'll talk about your goblin yeah. child that you keep chained up in the basement. Shh. Um, you know, there's a book I've been trying to find it, and because I never wrote down the title or the author, all I'm left with is the publisher, University of Minnesota Press, which I only remember because that's where I got my PhD. Anyway, there is a book of feminist cultural criticism that I read about very much in passing, so I've retained almost nothing of it, uh, that is writing about children, the bearing of children as a kind of act of violence against women. Yeah. And I think the context in which I found it was somebody online being outraged about this anti-child screed or tract and... Looking at motherhood in terms of labor, of this being labor, thinking of the child basically as a kind of a parasite uh, that is grown inside the body of a host for the purposes of perpetuating a patriarchal society and thinking about the labor that women perform in childbirth simply by virtue of bearing a child as a feminist issue. Mm -hmm. And that... To somebody like myself, who's, you know, raised, along with my wife, raised two children, and I'm very pro my children, and therefore, I suppose, pro other people's children. My first instinct was to look at this and be like, this is fucking crazy. But you know what Lessing is doing here is asking us to really understand a dimension of pregnancy, of raising a child, or not raising a child, but like bearing a child, that get swept under the rug, like just how brutally hard that on the is body. on a body on the bo- and on the mind, on a mind, yeah. on a life and how much rage and hatred and resentment can develop, not just in like, you know, special cases, like some peculiarly unmaternal mother, but in anybody, anybody can experience that. And maybe it'll be fleeting and maybe it's just like you have a bad day and that's how you feel. But this work of cultural criticism is trying to kind of really train our gaze on some of the less pleasant things about pregnancy that we might contemplate. And as I was reading this book, I'm like, you know, it's kind of doing a similar sort of cultural work as that academic book that I can no longer remember anything about. And it's, 
you know, obviously it may have occurred to you, listener, that I am not female and not capable of bearing a child. So I am speaking under correction, of course, but it seems to me to be a necessary intervention to ask us to look at motherhood or parenthood generally, but particularly motherhood and say, like, do we really know what this is? Right. We think we do. The Mother's Day version of motherhood. But do we really know what motherhood is? And, you know, we don't. Yeah. And, I mean, we don't know what anything is. And we sure as hell don't know what motherhood is. And Lessing is hitting us with Again, that. Again, another thing that looks different from the inside than it does from the outside. And that the inside story of motherhood has been told by men. <laughs> so it's not the inside story. Right. <laughs> and so yes. honoring that is... I think that having read this book, you know, as Proust said, literature is the only way we have of connecting with other humans. That's it. There's no other way. Which isn't true, um, but well, according it's to not him, the only way. Yeah. Well, he said that specifically what he said is- There's the small matter of music, but he, let, actually, let's let that actually, pass. Actually, in, in all fairness, he said art, not literature. Um, ah. But I really feel- Machen would say literature. Let's just say that I, that book came to mind a few times- as Leslie was um, mm. bearing our children. Mm. And we talked about it. She actually read it, I think, while she was pregnant with Delphine. Whoa, what a weird thing to read when you're pregnant. Or maybe it's a great thing to read when you're pregnant. I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. What, what we, on the night Delphine was born, we were you know, just trying to pass the time as her contractions were getting closer together so that we could the midwife could come over because we're doing a home birth. We're just waiting, and, and her contractions were ridiculously violent right from the start. Mm. Mm. I ended up reading The Raven to her. <laughs> it's just weird that of all things. Because, of course, yeah. you did. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's the most J.F. Martell shit I've ever heard. <laughs> and also, I, I made her read The Fifth Child. Although, <laughs> you want to know what I did to help Helen through the very difficult birth of our son is that I brought a little boombox and had made a mixtape that prominently featured Wagner's Siegfried Idyll. <laughs> so we each of us are, were being very on brand. We're just doing our best. In our role as expectant father, yes. It's just like, I don't know how else to respond to this except through Wagner or Edgar Allan Poe. But I have to admit that when I was 21 and read this book for the first time, I'd never given any thought to what it was like to be pregnant. Ever. It was just something mm -hmm. that women mm -hmm. did. And that, you know, like I was typical yeah. boy of my generation. I just, but to read this really kind of conveyed to me a sense of the experience. And it really, really, really struck me. And it really kind of just changed things. Okay, so eventually this child is born, and right from the beginning, this is 
a child like no other. In fact, I should read the description of the child as he emerges. The first response, we don't see it. It's just the doctor who delivered the baby saying, a real little wrestler. He came out fighting the whole world. And it captures the sort of jocosity of everybody standing around trying to humor a new mother and make her feel better. And you hear how these words just clang horribly against the incomprehensible reality of this child. The baby was put into her arms, 11 pounds of him. The others had not been more than seven pounds. He was muscular, yellowish, long. It seemed as if he were trying to stand up, pushing his feet into her side. He's a funny little chap, said David, and sounded dismayed. He was not a pretty baby. He did not look like a baby at all. He had a heavy-shouldered, hunched look, as if he were crouching there as he lay. His forehead sloped from his eyebrows to his crown. His hair grew in an unusual pattern from the double crown where started a wedge or triangle that came low on the forehead, the hair lying forward in a thick yellowish stubble, while the side and back hair grew downwards. His hands were thick and heavy with pads of muscle in the palms. He opened his eyes and looked straight up into his mother's face. They were focused greeny-yellow eyes like lumps of soapstone. She had been waiting to exchange looks with the creature who, she had been sure, had been trying to hurt her, but there was no recognition there, and her heart contracted with pity for him. Poor little beast, his mother disliking him so much. But she heard herself say nervously, though she tried to laugh, he's like a troll or a goblin or something. And she cuddled him to make up, but he was stiff and heavy. And then he starts suckling, and immediately he just like, bites, like savagely bites her breasts. He doesn't just feed, he drains her, you know. His she can't produce enough milk for this baby. Right. The avidity of his hungers, right, and the absolute selfishness isn't the right word. This creature is just like a black hole, yeah. you know. There's no light that emerges. She, she can't give anyone else any attention. All of her focus has to be on this baby just to keep him. Just to keep him. Satisfied. Under some semblance of control. Yeah. And like a black hole not only sucks everything in, creates an irresistible force drawing objects into its maw, but also nothing comes out. Light cannot escape a black hole. And this creature with its weird yellow unblinking eyes, it's always depicted from the point of view of the characters in the book who see him and he's just a black box, this inscrutable figure like where you're always asking like, what's going on behind those eyes? What are you thinking? Right up until he and leaves home. And he never says yeah. or does anything that lets on to any motive other than aggression. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, it's an analogy. She's talking about pregnancy in general because all of those experiences, the painful breastfeeding, that's a big part. That was, that was a big part for Leslie with Delphine, our own little goblin. For many uh, it, it was extremely painful. It was like somebody was slicing up her nipples with razor blades is how she said it. Fuck. And the hunger in the baby and, the, and Delphine came out with her eyes wide open. I was 
which is rather unusual. Yeah, yeah. Her eyes I was just reading open. that account and I was like, well, that's an eldritch touch right there that the baby immediately looks straight in the mother's eyes. <laughs> Delphine was Ben at the beginning. But no, she was a beautiful baby, except that the eyes were too big on her face. <laughs> to us, she looked just beautiful, despite how difficult she was. And of course, the, you know, we're trying to get at the subtleties of the thing here. We were overjoyed with, I mean, we were happy. We, our experience was nothing like David and Harriet's, but there were parallels. The painfulness of breastfeeding for yeah. Leslie, the extremely demanding character of our child. It was like insane. She mm. did not sleep through the night until she was three. And, mm. uh, and also the eyes though. I took a picture of her on her first day. It was like this, close up of her face looking into the camera with these I mean there there were no um whites in her eyes. It was all iris and pupil, right? Whoa. So they're like these these black eyes staring into the camera. And I'm like, oh isn't that cute? And I sent it to everybody, my email. And I sent the full size, you know, the full res version of the picture. And people were like responding like, whoa, that's intense, you know. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> and I look at it now and, and Congratulations, she looks, I guess. She looks like a demon, you know, when I look back on it. Now, <laughs> poor Delphine. And um She's a yeah. beautiful and charming child. I, I emphasize to the folks at home that both of JF and Leslie's children are almost incomprehensibly beautiful and charming. <laughs> they really are just lovely, well-mannered, sweet-natured children. Oh, which is, you know, I had to I had to get permission from her to talk about any of this, both her and Leslie, before I brought it up on the show. And Delphine's quite yeah. proud of her goblin stage at this point. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. somehow knew she would be. <laughs> um, but it was hard. And and you know, when you're not sleeping. And you have a newborn and it's like night after night. I mean, I was barely sleeping. I had to sleep some because I had to work. Leslie was taking care of the, she, she could barely sleep. Um, and this went on. She wouldn't sleep even like a, as a three day old infant, she wasn't sleeping. And so it was very tough. And you, you enter a zone after a while just from sheer sleep deprivation and the inescapability of the situation, of course. Not that you would want to escape, but that, you know, you just realize. Although wow, sometimes is... you totally do. Yeah, Let's exactly. be real. Well, you have, an, you have an instinct to escape. It got really, 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 really dark. It just got to a point where we were just coping, managing. Yeah. And not really living, just surviving. And yet we meet people and other people. New mothers around us were like, oh, isn't it wonderful? And, and we're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, and not not communicating this, because why would you? I mean, what's the point? I mean, maybe maybe parents should communicate more about the other side of things. But it certainly the darker didn't side. feel right. Yeah, the darker side, because that's part of it too. And so when I read this book, I'm like, well, that's what she's getting at. That's the point of the book in a way. Like my mind goes there. But I listened to this long interview with her and she's like... No, she was writing a book about a goblin <laughs> coming into our world. Like to her, yeah. it was literally like a fantasy book about yeah. a goblin, a kind of latent species that's still somehow somewhere in the human genome and sometimes appears again or something like that. Right. And that's what she was writing about. But the parallels are, are striking. Which, by the way, is also something that she does in Shikasta. Shikasta is the name of a planet. And the idea is that this planet has been... It's almost like the project of this very enlightened planet 
that is trying to shepherd the development of this intelligent species along. And you get the impression that what they're calling Shikasta is Earth. Right. And the idea is that at a certain point, there's another alien species, which is kind of evil or villainous, that are like crassly uh, transactional, and they're about violence and domination and possession. They're selfish and mean. And the idea is that this almost science fair experiment of trying to shepherd an intelligent species through its childhood and adolescence to a healthy adulthood is completely subverted by this other species. And it's almost like, oh, the reason that life on Earth is so fucked up is because there's actually a whole other species that's like imperceptibly blended in with another species, the good guy species and the bad guy species, which right. when I, I, it's more subtle than that. But when I put it like that, I do feel that she's running a variation of that schema in The Fifth Child. There's some aspects of that I'm not crazy about. Yeah. You know, if you take it literally, it almost sounds fascist. Yes. As if we're t talking about like criminals the way Lombroso talked about them as a degenerated form of humanity, which leads nowhere good. You know, David Icke, the, uh, do you know about him? Oh, is he the lizard guy, lizard people guy? Yeah. Basically. That guy's fucking nuts. Yeah, basically. This I don't usually say that about people, <laughs> but that guy's fucking nuts. He, his theory is that a lot of the, like the royal family, for example, a lot of the elites, I'm sure he would include George Soros in there probably, and are all actually reptiles, shape-shifting reptiles who come from, I think they come from the hollow earth, from inside the earth, and they um, mm, are of course. basically controlling the planet and stopping us from being our natural, sympathetic, compassionate selves. Um, yeah, it feels like othering to me a big time, but yeah. I feel like I should have boned up on my hollow earth theory and all that stuff about, what are they called, those people from the inside of the, the earth? The Darrow. The Darrow, yeah. It's a book there, 20th century. It's the canonic formulation of this idea. It's a different kind of esoteric theory, right? Like one kind of esoteric theory for why everything sucks is that the secret chiefs are locked in an eternal battle with the Black Brothers. Yeah. This is the Rosicrucian theosophical idea that there's a cosmic conspiracy, a kind of war in heaven. But this is another way of doing the same thing, which is you say, oh yeah, no, there, it's a chthonic yeah. invasion, an invasion from the depths, from the center of the earth, this inimical, I don't know, species or group of people who are responsible for all the crazy shit that you see happening up on the surface. If you want to look at that psychoanalytically, it makes perfect sense. You know, the chthonic is the unconscious. The goblins are the unconscious thoughts, unconscious drives that shape our behavior. Uh, but that's kind of a boring take. But it's at least it's not fascist if you look at it that way. Yes, indeed. <laughs> at least it's not fascist. So anyway, to get back to the telling of the story, do you want to do you want to continue? So he grows up, and you know the great hope for any parents in this situation would be, well, this child will eventually grow out of this phase and learn how to sleep and how to, you know, learn how to be hygienic and how to behave. But this child just never changes. He changes, but not in the, the way you would hope. Not developmentally. Yeah. At one point, she can't take it anymore. The child is harming the other children. Ben, his name is, is harming the other children. Kills a couple of house pets. 
like there's this little child, their fourth child, Paul, who's a sweet, cuddly little kid and is sort of fascinated by Ben. And Ben just uses that as an opportunity to kind of lure him in and then almost breaks his arm. And just out of sheer delight in cruelty, a sheer delight in administering pain. And at one point, um, David's like, this is, there's, we can't do this anymore. So he talks to his father, who's quite wealthy, and his father makes some discreet phone calls and finds this facility that takes children like this. This is my favorite scene in the book. We're going to read that description, right? Yes. That you can read nightmarish it, but, description. Yeah. So, so this van shows up. And these are the people who will be taking Ben. And then Harriet has to kind of trick him. Anyways, they get in the van and drive off with the kid. Her father-in-law and her husband don't tell her where the child is. And then, of course, her maternal instincts kick in. And she wants to know where he is and she can't And live. her conscience, because she realizes to some extent they've all found a way to off this kid. And she realizes, like, we sent him to his death. Yes. And she feels like she's failed this child. So she decides right. one day to just go to this facility, finds out where it is and goes there. And it is fucked up. This is a perfect example of the horrors being all the more horrifying for being presented us in broad daylight and in this very unfussy, unfancy English prose style. It's just this desolate building. I'm picturing kind of brutalist monstrosity on a desolate landscape somewhere in the north of England. I don't remember if that's actually the case. Of course it would be the north. <laughs> so she drives to this place. She finds the place. And there's only like two people working in there. Both of them obviously worn down to a nub by the stress and misery of their occupation. Yeah, a man and a woman. Um, so this is what she sees. She was at the end of a long ward, which had any number of cots and beds along the walls. In the cots were monsters. While she strode rapidly through the ward to the door at the other end, she was able to see that every bed or cot held an infant or small child in whom the human template had been wrenched out of pattern, sometimes horribly, sometimes slightly. A baby, like a comma, great lolling head on a stalk of a body— then something like a stick insect, enormous bulging eyes among stiff fragilities that were limbs. A small girl all blurred, her flesh guttering and melting. A doll with chalky swollen limbs, its eyes wide and blank like blue ponds, and its mouth open, showing a swollen little tongue. A lanky boy was skewed, one half of his body sliding from the other. A child seemed at first glance normal, but then Harriet saw... There was no back to its head. It was all face, which seemed to scream at her. Rows of freaks, nearly all asleep and all silent. They were literally drugged out of their minds. Well, nearly silent. There was a dreary sobbing from a cot that had its sides shielded with blankets. The high, intermittent screaming, nearer now, still assaulted her nerves. A smell of excrement, stronger than the disinfectant. Then she was out of the nightmare ward and in another corridor, parallel to the one she had first seen, and identical. At its end, she saw the girl, followed by the young man, come a little way towards her, and then again turn right. 
and the girl and the young man are the two people, the only two people who are working there. Yeah, uh, and, and she's trying to basically she's trying to force her way in because they won't let her in, and she's basically just going looking for Ben. Yeah, right? it's like uh, at this point, this is where we've crossed over, right? Um, yes. Are we being told how Harriet experiences this? Are these just actually malformed or deformed babies or are they actual monsters? Like, there's no there's no way to know. And some of this doesn't even seem possible. Like, you know, a head that's just a face. There's no head, yes. just a face. Like that's something out of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Right. Yes, it is. <laughs> and in that, you definitely have the whiff of horror, like fantasy horror. And and in compared to these other monsters, um, yeah, Ben's pretty good. Yeah, high functioning. And she grabs Ben from this place and leaves with him and brings him home again. And her family never forgives her. Because the thing is that after Ben leaves, they actually start healing yes. as a family. Poor little Paul is getting really fucked up and neurotic because he's a needy child and he needs his mother's love. And she just has no love to give him because Ben is this black hole sucking up all of her energy and all of her attention. And with him not there, she starts to hang out with her kids and they start to respond to a more loving environment. And her husband is not constantly stressed out and depressed. And then when she brings Ben home, you get the feeling it's like she just killed the family. She destroyed the family for this goblin. And she knows it. She, She's aware of it. Yeah, there's a line here. It says... Um, but how they felt it, she knew, was that she had turned her back on them all and chosen to go off into alien country with Ben. She basically yes. belongs to his world now, in their eyes. And then, of course, things don't get much better from there. Uh, ben grows up, becomes a teenager, becomes a kind of like, it's super weird, the part where he's an adolescent, because he suddenly becomes this kind of cool yeah. kid. He's got this gang of kids who are much older than him hanging out with him, and he's kind of the leader. And he's running this little gang of potential criminals. Thugs. And they're, they're just hanging out at the house, eating the food and whatever. And Harriet just basically just caters to them. Goes with it. Goes with just it. Goes with it. And just waiting for the day where he'll just leave of his own accord. It starts when, actually, it starts a little earlier when she finds this gang of, of hoodlums in the neighborhood who, you know, have motorcycles or whatever. And she pays one of them to babysit Ben and he just takes him away on his motorcycle every day. And Ben loves this guy. At this point, he's like eight, I think, or seven or eight. But then eventually, as he becomes a teenager, he becomes the leader of his own little pack. And then she begins to suspect that they're involved in criminal activity. And then one day he leaves. He leaves and he leaves a broken home behind him. There's no way to really recapture that dream that Harriet and David set their minds on on realizing all those years back, right. it's over. And even though he's gone, she's constantly thinking of him, imagining where he is, imagining, you know, hoping that somehow he'll find his own kind out there, that he'll find others like him. But realizing that his own kind might be like every time, you know, somewhere she says like at a certain point, every time she heard there was a rape or an act of violence or robbery or really any kind of outrage, she always is sort of thinking like, it's either Ben or people in Ben's world. Yeah. And she starts thinking of Ben almost as a kind of a, like a metonym. Um, hmm. The way in speech, we'll say instead of, Provincial lands or federal lands in Canada will say crown lands because the crown is the 
metonym for um, State, authority. Yeah. Well, similarly, Ben becomes a metonym for that entire dimension of humanity that destroys and exalts in destruction. Okay, so where it ends is that Ben is sitting in the next room with his gang. They're watching TV. They always like it when there's some act of violence. They love watching the news in hopes they could see somebody get killed or badly hurt. And then they laugh and cackle and high five each other whenever that happens. And Harriet is just like, this is her life. She's happy they're there because at least it's keeping Ben occupied. And you get the definite sense that he is right on the cusp of leaving and belonging fully to that world, the yeah. hooligan world. Harriet sat on there quietly with the television sounds and their voices coming from next door. And she sometimes looked at Ben quickly and then away. And she wondered how soon they would all simply go off, perhaps not knowing they would not return. She would sit there beside the quiet, soft shine of the pool that was the table and wait for them to come back, but they would not come back. And why should they stay in this country? They could easily take off and disappear into any number of the world's great cities, join the underworld there, live off their wits, perhaps quite soon, in the new house she would be living in, alone, with David. She would be looking at the box, and there, in a shot on the news of Berlin, Madrid, Los Angeles, Buenos Aires, she would see Ben, standing rather apart from the crowd, staring at the camera with his goblin eyes, or searching the faces in the crowd for another of his own kind. And here we have Full Circle, where the news, capital N, the outside world, is completely broken in, and she is just irremediably tangled up in the... That outside that she would have wanted to keep out, you know, she's now watching the news looking for Ben. Ben becomes a metonym for all of that, right? It's heavy. It's heavy, heavy stuff. Um, of all the things we've talked about, this is probably one of the heaviest. And weirdly, you know, actually I saw an Amazon review of this book. It's sometimes interesting to read Amazon reviews just to see like what people make of things. I mean, they're not useful as reviews, but how people's minds work. Yeah. And one person was like, it's not scary. It doesn't work like a horror novel because you don't have 
like an escalating series of episodes. You don't get an escalating series of shocks. And this person never read Edgar Allan Poe or, you know, like, I mean, but this is the classic way that TV scripts are written. Like I've gotten super into watching Star Trek, the next generation, fucking awesome show. And every episode, it seems most episodes, they're structured around a series of, I think, four commercial breaks. And so it's like a five act structure. And the fifth act is, of course, the resolution. But every one leading up to that one through four represents like a stage of increased action, tension, increased yes. stakes. And this is very typical. This is just how this is. I mean, I've never read one of those screenwriting 101 books, but I've got to assume that they tell you that if you're going to do a horror film, you should probably have this ascending series of horrors, right? And this book doesn't work that way. No. It kind of plateaus out. The The height of it, the climax of horror is that episode in the ward. And that happens only maybe halfway through the book. Yeah. And for the rest of it, you're waiting uneasily to see what happens, but like kind of nothing happens. He just hangs out with some thugs and you are given to understand that that's always going to be his life. The end. Yeah. The story lands very smoothly. It just kind of tapers off. Yeah. Right in an interesting way, but there are moments, that's the thing though, although I agree with you that structurally, it doesn't respect the modern horror idiom. Like if you read The Exorcist, you know, it starts very subtle, then it gets weirder and weirder and weirder until her head's spinning and shit. But she does draw on the wells of horror, you know, and she, she uses the tropes and she just presents them without the cliches that surround those tropes usually. She's just giving you the tropes. It's, it's, that's why it's so uncomfortably easy to see the parallels between Ben and any child that's difficult, you know? And that's what makes the book so troubling. It's that we can see the gothic dimension of reality. It doesn't give us an other gothic world. It's showing us the gothicity of, of our lives, you know? Like at the very beginning, when they buy the house, they're all excited, right? So David and Harriet, they're young. They got this big house. They're exploring the rooms and they end up making love three times in their first day in their house. And at this point, Harriet knows she's ovulating. So she's like, well, said Harriet in a little voice, though she was frightened and determined not to show it. Well, that's done it for sure. In other words, I'm pregnant now. And then we read, he, meaning David, he laughed, a loud, reckless, unscrupulous laugh, quite unlike modest, humorous, judicious David. Now the room was quite dark. It looked vast, like a black cave that had no end. A branch scraped across a wall somewhere close. There was a smell of cold, rainy earth and sex. David lay smiling to himself, and when he felt her look, he turned his head slightly and his smile included her. But on his terms, his eyes gleamed with thoughts she could not guess at. She felt she did not know him. David, she said quickly, to break the spell, but his arm tightened around her and he gripped her upper arm with a hand she had not believed could be so strong, insistent. The grip said, be quiet. Wow. Yeah. The thing that is most intimate becomes so other to her. It's the knowledge that now she's pregnant, right? She's alone. I mean, you could analyze this different ways. She realizes, and then she realizes that he's not part of this. But somehow he's responsible for it. And the sudden estrangement of this man that she felt she knew and he becomes a stranger to her. I just found that so powerful, such a real experience. And yet 
presented as pure Gothic horror. She's kind of restoring Gothic. She's showing us how a, a real realism has to be Gothic because <laughs> those those things are part of reality. Those experiences are part of our phenomenological world. And it resonates with the imagery around Ben. We're constantly hearing about those yellow eyes, those glittering yellow eyes that are completely opaque. Yeah. No sense of the subjectivity behind those eyes. You know how at nighttime a light will shine like a, a car with its headlights up rounding the corner and the beam of light might cross your cat's face mm -hmm. or dog's face. It happens with dogs too. And their eyes will light up like really bright, uh, like LED lights. And it's the light that's being shone in their eyes reflected. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, they always look kind of like weird devil creatures, right? Well, cats are really good at doing that. They don't need car headlights to do it. Just the, the moonlight Very will true. do it. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. Even dogs, that'll happen. Sure, yeah. And in that moment, like you've got your sweet, beloved pet that you love. And for a second there, you don't know them, you know? It's a weird little feeling of like just a fleeting moment, you don't know them. They're radically other. And... In that moment that she's with David, she looks at his eyes and she doesn't see David there. That's a wonderful figure for something that happens with things of all kinds, inanimate objects that in a certain light, in a certain mood, become utterly other. Even the most cozy and domestic and familiar, the most heimlich yeah. of settings will become unheimlich in a moment, in an instant, in the snap of your fingers yeah. with a certain beam of light falling on it and boom, you don't know where you are or what you're looking at. And as I said in the uh, the Hoffman Sandman episode, I think I brought up Zizek's idiosyncratic take on Lacan, and this might be just canonical Lacan, I'm not sure because I haven't studied Lacan very closely, but Zizek talks about seeing when that happens, yeah, this is what in Lacanian terms would be encountering the real, right? The symbolic and the imaginary fall out and you're confronted with the real. The people you think you know best, you're fooling yourself by thinking you know them. In fact, if the, the symbolic kind of nimbus of signifiers that constellate that person for you were to fall out, you would see that there's actually nothing behind there. I'm not, I don't believe this, by the way. I'm just saying that it's an experience. Right. That you look into someone's eyes and you see that, in fact, what you're looking at is a, a brain, a, a brain powered by electrical discharges and chemical interactions. There's nothing there. And in a Lacanian, Zizekian view of things... That's what encountering reality is like. Well, that is what Louis Sass, who I brought up at the end of our Glitch in the Matrix episode, this is what Louis Sass means by the Stimmung. Stimmung means mood in German, but it's one of those words like Heimlich that has an awful lot of implication packed That's into it. That's Heidegger, isn't it? Stimmung and mood in that sense. Well, I haven't read enough Heidegger to be able to say anything intelligent about that. I'm not sure where the uh, connection is, but yeah, go on. Yeah, but you know, there's that passage that I read out loud in the Glitch episode, which I'm not going to read again, but it's Giorgio de Chirico talking about the hour of the enigma. Right. What it is to, as he puts it, live in the world as if in an immense museum of strangeness. And then what Sass, a clinical psychologist, is interested in doing is understanding this mood that de Chirico describes as 
something that throws light on the mind of the schizophrenic. The onset of a schizophrenic break is marked by something that is known as the Stimmung, and he wants to understand that Stimmung, that mood, that anticipatory tremor of madness in which everything looks exactly the same, but with completely different meanings, or perhaps with their meanings emptied out. So this is what Sass says about this onset of a schizophrenic break. As is the case with epileptic seizures, schizophrenic breaks are often preceded by an aura. Conrad, a German psychiatrist, named this preliminary stage the trema, a term of theatrical slang referring to the stage fright before the performance begins. Patients will be suspicious, restless, unable to concentrate. Their mood may veer between anxiety and exaltation, and generally they have a sense that everything has undergone some subtle, all-encompassing change. Reality seems to be unveiled as never before, and the perceptual world looks peculiar and eerie, weirdly beautiful, or perhaps horrifying in some insidious way. Transfixed by this vision, the patients stare at the world before them, thus manifesting that early sign of illness labeled by German psychiatrists as the truth-taking stare. Varnemungstara. Often this mood is followed by the development of delusions, especially the delusional percept, a symptom in which a strange and often highly personalized interpretation is attached to a seemingly normal perception. This, by the way, is from an academic article published in New Ideas in Psychology back in 1988. It's called The Land of Unreality on the Phenomenology of the Schizophrenic Break. Superb article, which you can find through JSTOR if you are so fortunate as to have institutional access through JSTOR. But in any event, Sass continues, the mood and its associated vision seem to be infinitely paradoxical and nearly indescribable. To judge from what patients do say, everything appears to be in some sense perfectly normal. The patients experience neither hallucinations nor delusions. Their thinking does not seem to be formally disordered in any gross fashion. Yet everything is completely and uncannily transformed. In this experience that involves a kind of anti-epiphany, there is often a contradictory sense of meaningfulness and meaninglessness. Somehow the familiar has turned strange and the unfamiliar familiar. Yeah. The patient may experience both déjà vu and jamais vu in quick succession or even at the same moment. Aspects of this vision are vividly captured in the above excerpt from journals of the painter Georgia de Chirico, a man of markedly schizoid character who was one of the most important influences on the artistic movement of surrealism. De Chirico borrowed from Nietzsche the untranslatable German word Stimmung to refer to this mood, attitude, or stage of mind that seems to underline the truth-taking stare. And the reason I've gone on at length is partly because that's a badass passage. And the larger book that these essays were developed into, Madness and Modernism, is an unacknowledged classic in the study of modernism, looking at artistic modernism in a kind of phenomenological way, using tools or concepts as tools like the Stimmung, but the reason I bring it up, though, aside from the inherent interest of these ideas, is that it seems to define the perception that Harriet has in these moments when she's with David or really any time she's with Ben. Like there's just an irreducible strangeness. Yeah, he looks funny. He's got that weird sloping brow and the bristly straw colored hair. And he's certainly very odd in his behavior. His only verbal utterances are demands, give me this, want that. But 
in a way, Ben is just like a normal person viewed through the truth-taking stare. You know what I mean? Or a baby or a normal child. Yes. Viewed through the truth-taking stare. Yes, yes. Uh, there's, there's a recent exchange in, on our Patreon with a listener reminding me of Agamben's concept of homo sacer. Well, actually, homo sacer was a, a legal term in Roman law. Homo sacer means sacred man. And it was a sentence that you put on a, a criminal and it made that person sacred in the pagan sense of being set apart. So someone who was a homo sacer could be killed by anybody and no one would be, uh, it, it wouldn't be a crime to kill this person. Usually this, huh. this sentence was a punishment for breaking oaths. Because if you broke an oath, then the gods would have their vengeance on you. So therefore, anyone who kills you is just exacting the vengeance of the gods, which meant you were basically open, right. open season on you. But Agamben takes this concept of homo sacer to propose an idea that he calls bare life. And basically, bare life is that part of a human being that cannot be included in the legal conception of what a human is. So if you strip away the rights of a person, then all that's left is bare life. And bare life is included in the law insofar as it is included as an exclusion. It is that part of us that is excluded from the law. Hmm. Uh, but <laughs> it's created by the law as that which the law excludes. So uh, homo hmm. sacer was a person reduced to that in the Roman Empire. And therefore, was almost like a human animal, an animal that looked human. And hmm. it seems to me that Ben's curse, really, is that he is not human, but looks human enough to evoke a kind of uncanny valley effect where no one knows where to put him. No one knows how to classify him. Right. And so therefore he's the included exclusion. He's part of the family, but right. he can never actually be part of it. It's hard to say whether his behavior follows from this. Is he just acting this way because of the way he looks? He can't get the love he needs from his parents because he looks so strange. Or is he actually what Hillman would say, like a bad seed that he comes out demonic already? That book doesn't tell us. The, the Doris Lessing doesn't tell us one way or the other. It's hard to know how much the... Well, the, although it strongly implies the latter. That he's just demonic? That he's just a bad seed. Well, all we, all we get is a description of the behavior. But, right, which is awful. But if, if yeah. the, in, the, her first thought on looking at him is, I don't love him. So yeah. I guess it's open... To, we're left to try to, I mean, I don't want to say like I'm blaming Harriet for the way Ben is, but you know, no, no. life is life, you know? Is it just the way he looks that sets the stage for his development or is he actually a kind of demonic child? I don't know. Yeah. The horror of this book is subtle and part of the horror of it is imagining what would happen to your normal life if a monstrous singularity like Ben appeared within it. Almost sort of like, what would happen if you woke up and you were a cockroach? Yeah. Of course, Kafka plays around with that. It's sort of parallel to that in a way. In a way, but it's different in the sense that the experience she describes is an experience that many parents have. I think every parent has at least fleetingly 
doesn't matter what kind of child we're talking about. It's like the moment where you see your child not as your child. Harriet's curse is that she can never see Ben as her child. Yeah. From the moment he comes out, from before the moment he comes out. What does a child look like stripped to the level of bare life? Right. Once you've stripped away the love or just feelings of duty and obligation that you have for a young life that you've brought into the world. What happens when you strip away that? What happens when you strip away all of the meanings that we give to a child? Yeah, what Lacan would call the symbolic, right? The whole kind of structure of symbolic meaning that we use to contain things. Then you're just left with a little monster in your life, right? It's a crazy thing to imagine. Actually, David Lynch does something very similar in Eraserhead. Oh, yes. His actually, creation of the yeah, baby. Right. I've heard it suggested that Doris Lessing lived in Africa for a while in the 40s and had a marriage and had children and decided pretty abruptly to leave her family, move back to London and throw herself into her political work. She was an active communist and later moved away from that. I think it might have been the Hungarian invasion, the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956 that put paid to her communism. Not 100% sure about that. But in any event, like many British intellectuals, she became an ex-communist. But the point is that that was a motivation for her to leave her family behind. And the argument is that she was sort of working through perhaps some unresolved emotions, perhaps feelings of guilt in writing The Fifth Child. Now, I don't like the reduction of art to these kinds of pat biographical origin stories. There's a tendency that people have to say, well, that explains it, like as if the reality of a complex work of art is going to be given by some story that we can give for it. I'm completely against that. Nevertheless, that's an interesting thought that that is at least something that might have seeded Lessing's imagination, the experience of having children and not having the expected reaction to them. And let me tell you, that is a universal thing. It's funny. I've had this conversation now with a number of, I'm thinking one person in particular who graduated and then got married and had children. And when his first child was very little, like three weeks, I was talking to him and I could tell there was something really troubling him. It was more an intuition than anything he said. I was like, he is seriously worried that he hates his child, that he doesn't feel the feelings that you should have for your child. And I told him, I was like, just wait until they smile at you. Babies are fucking weird. They're weird little creatures. They do not look like they do on TV shows. They look like a little fucking larvae. they don't larvae. sleep like babies either. <laughs> no, they sleep at random times yeah. and you're constantly trying to catch moments of sleep. And then they wake up 10 minutes later, just as you're falling asleep, it's fucking torture. And the feeling of like no way out. You used to hear about guys who would go out for a pack of smokes and never return. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I understand that now. And I could tell that my friend understood it too. And I was like, don't worry, you get through it. And I was talking to him later and he was like, yeah, you were totally right. It it was just a few days. My point is they start off, they seem, they're pretty fucking alien and it's not easy to empathize with them, but they become more human with every new capacity they develop. They're more relatable. And for me, smiling, the first smile I got was just fucking huge. It just completely changed. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't like I hated my kids. Please don't misunderstand me, but... But it just felt like a lot of bloody work at the beginning without the compensating feelings that 
make you feel like a no thang. One thing Leslie said to me, which I think is very wise and true, is that she remembers being like sitting Delphine down in front of her and looking at her in her eyes and saying, you. And when she would talk to Delphine and say the word you, she felt that there was a transference, that she was in recognizing her as a human being, she was actually making her fully human, bringing her out into yeah, into the world, and that that connection. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense to me. And um, you got to do that. You know that the, you know a man does not live on bread alone. A baby doesn't live on milk alone. It needs also that recognition, which it doesn't deserve. <laughs> You're right. It doesn't deserve it <laughs> in the first few months, but you give it that as a gift that it doesn't deserve, and maybe that's what Ben never got. I guess ultimately you have to like- No, but I got the feeling it's like there is nothing that could have happened other than what happened in this book. There is a feeling of iron fate here. Yeah, I agree. But would that be your theory if it were to happen for real? Like- Wait, what's that? If if something like this were to happen to someone you know, would you say, no, there's nothing to be done for this child? It's No, of course not. I mean, it's almost necessary to believe that every bad situation can be helped in some way. You want to believe that a child, however (laughs) goblin-like, however seemingly inhuman or whatever, you want to believe that this is not just a hopeless situation. Right. But Lessing... She's just grabbing us by the scruff of the neck and not allowing us that comfort. That's how we would respond as human beings. Like, imagine that this actually happened and you knew somebody who had Ben as a child. Your response would be outside and it would be completely unhelpful. We're just doing this extra. We recorded before recording this episode. And it was all about inside and outside, about how certain things look different on the inside than the outside. So an example I gave was divination. And I was talking about how anthropologists are going to understand, for example, how Inuit peoples use divination to help them figure out where they're going to go hunting caribou. And... The anthropologist will notice that it's actually effective for them, that they seem to do better doing these divinatory practices. But then the anthropologist is looking for an external explanation of how this is possible. And so like the idea that by adding an element of randomness in their search, they're actually upping the chances of finding game. And we were talking about how that's actually very plausible and that in fact may be true. But it also doesn't touch what's happening on the inside of the experience, the experience of the hunters divining and finding animals through that divination. Likewise, a marriage is like that. You know, we all have opinions about our friends' marriages and so on. But I've said this to you before. A marriage is a grand arcanum, a great mystery. And the beating heart of a marriage is unknown and unknowable to everyone. Everybody except the two people involved. Even the children don't really understand their parents' marriage. And so that's a great example of something that will look very different on the inside from the outside. Well, this book is all about that too. So return my little thought experiment. Like if you imagine if someone you knew had been as a child, if all of the 
events of this story transpired exactly as written in someone else's life, you would be exactly like one of these clueless, useless motherfuckers who are constantly saying completely unhelpful things and giving worthless advice to Harriet. And at a certain point, she feels so alone because nobody is on the inside of this except her and Ben. Except if what we're being told in this story is just Harriet's own experience of it that doesn't account for the the reality. Like, are we, is she? Yeah, there's nothing from like Ben's point of view. No. Or any other point of view from her other than hers. Right? Is she projecting onto Ben this monstrosity? Is Doris Lessing just telling the- I don't believe so. The story from a first person perspective. Maybe I don't think so, just because I find the whole unreliable narrator thing, that's the equivalent of zombies in monster movies, is the unreliable narrator in anything involving suspense or intrigue. It's, it irritates me. Over-reliance on the unreliable narrator, not the device itself, just like zombies are a perfectly good monster. They just ended up- You mean up, as a critical tool, as a critical resort? Yeah, as a critical, t- or as a way, or- or it's just a lazy way of people writing genre fiction, trying to make their stuff. Okay, I'm clearly bugging you because maybe you created something that involves a unreliable narrator. No, I don't no, know. I was just wondering if you. I don't read mean it. to be accidentally insulting your creative work. I'm not saying that all. It's okay. I'd be in very good company if I'd written with an unreliable narrator. I'd be with like Nabokov and all kinds of. Right. Yeah, so there's. I'm just saying the. Okay, I'll put it this way. You know what? For me, is one of the grandest betrayals in all of film. It's the ending of The Wizard of Oz. I always thought that the ending of that movie just completely ruins it because it takes away everything. Where it's like, oh, it was all a dream. I hate that shit. That's a Dios Machina. That's, that, but that's not the unreliable narrator. That's a completely different No, trope. but it's like, it's the same gesture. It's like, I'm going to take everything back. You just saw fiction. You got wrapped up in it. You're part of that world. And now I'm going to take it all away and reveal that none of it was ever real. There is a place for that in the artist's toolkit, but I feel like you have to do it carefully and well. I mean, from a certain point of view, that also happened in that episode of Adventure Time, Puhoy, that we did an extra on that we released on the flagship. And I absolutely fucking love that. So clearly that thing where you take away the entire narrative at the end, that gesture of which the unreliable narrator is a type Clearly, there are great uses for that. I just get exasperated when it's used clumsily or badly. And I feel like in interpretations of art where people are like, what if the whole thing was just like, you know, unreliable narrator? Then you're trying to take back everything in the novel that made it interesting in the first place. No, what I'm saying is that what we're being given here is a relationship from the inside. And so where the entities in, involved in the relationship are constituted by the relationship. And so when Harriet has the baby, she looks at it and says, it looks like a goblin. It looks like a troll. She names it that. I'm saying it's not an unreliable narrator thing. It's that who is responsible ultimately for Ben in the end? Is it just that are we born with a full-fledged like personality that's going to be expressing itself? Is it like, it's the nurture versus uh, nature thing. 
But that's the weird thing about Ben, and you alluded to it earlier in this conversation, is that when he comes out, he doesn't seem like a baby at all. And this is a motive that keeps coming back, that he just doesn't seem like a child. She and then, says that, but she describes him like a lot of babies look when they're newborn. She describes right. a type of newborn that we've seen. Some people will show you a picture of their newborn, and you're like, ooh, that's, that's cute. Uh, that's, <laughs> some of them look... Monstrous. When I have born. a friend whose grandmother had a stock response. Anytime somebody would show her a photo like that, she'd say, my, that is a baby. <laughs> yeah. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because the actual experiences that are described in the book are things that happen exactly like that to many, many parents. Unruly no, children that's, that's that hurt true. the animals in the house, that hurt the other kids. That happens all the time. There's nothing right. in this book that's supernatural. It just reads like a difficult, really difficult child, as what James Hillman calls a bad seed in The Soul's Code. Some children are extremely difficult. And yet somehow not just a difficult child. Like I take seriously the radical alterity of Ben, the question of what he is, ontologically speaking, is he even a human? Yeah, well... That's where we start entering potentially fascist territory. <laughs> right. Well, and I understand that there is a, a sequel, which I yes. didn't read, but it's called Ben in the World. And as I understand, it's all about his attempt to find people like him. And at the end, somebody says they're going to take him to see his people. And it turns out they're petroglyphs. Yeah. They're like figures carved in the rock by some long dead race and he realizes the truth that he's an atavistic throwback and he commits suicide at that point but is that just the opinion of the person who led him there or is that a revelation of the truth of the story again it's ambiguous well clearly for her she wanted you know it's like she does this thing that you and i both hate she wanted to explain her creation and so she comes up with a real world like an explanation well no but she doesn't she doesn't. All she does is that she sees petroglyphs. That's the opinion of the person that took him there. It's not a revelation in the narrative of the truth. It's just that this person thought he looked like those creatures in the petroglyphs. Again, you're left with the same ambiguity. I think I'm not arguing for an unreliable narrator like that's how you explain the novel. I'm saying the novel is profoundly ambiguous as no, to that's what true. is what. That's all that's I mean. That's absolutely true. And the ambiguity, it's, it's as wrong to say it's all in Harry's head as it is to say, oh, no, no, it's about a woman who gives birth to a goblin, even though there's mm. a sense in which either of mm. those right. is true. And we're just left. That's why I'm saying it has no line. It doesn't tell you what to think. It just gives you this bizarre story and you're just left with it. And then you try to make sense of it. I wasn't well, trying to like in a Freudian way explain away the book here. I was just raising okay, the I gotcha. point of the I gotcha. profound ambiguity of it. No, and I think that point is absolutely the point to make about this book, that unresolved tension is right. probably why we wanted to talk about it. I didn't know about this book at all before you mentioned it to me. Oh, it's such a it's such a weird of all the books, I mean I mean there's a lot of weird books out there, but this one is weird in a weird way, I found. It's like <laughs> it didn't intend to be a horror novel. It just happened to be one because the things that happened were so horror like or horrific. Right. I don't know. It's just, it's very unique. And it's a really quick read. It's only like 159 pages in my, my uh, edition it here. Blows by. With, with huge print. I'm showing it like people can see it. Um, <laughs> but as an exploration of the mysteries of, of parenthood, as a nice 
counterweight to something like the nativity story in which birth is presented as a kind of beautiful miracle. Uh, it's kind of an anti-nativity, right? It's like we mentioned before the possibility that this is a virgin birth, which is kind of hinted at that Harriet can't remember how mm. this baby could be conceived. So we're given a kind of anti-nativity. It's, it's blasphemous mockery of the virgin birth. Yeah. And in that sense, it belongs to a genre of that time, right? Like uh, think of Rosemary's Baby. Yes. Uh, the Omen. The Omen. Yeah. And its the, sequels. The the whole idea. Demon of, Seed. There's in fact a movie named Demon Seed. Yeah. And I think that trope in modern horror is not unconnected to that feminist theory you were describing earlier about the inherent violence of, of childbearing. I think that we were forced because of all kinds of things, all kinds of social changes, that it became necessary for us to start talking about, maybe it was necessary a long time before, to start talking about the dark side of parenthood. And I guess this book participates in that new tradition, I guess, of trying to come to terms with that. I would say that in the end, I mean, this is the fifth child. So by the time she has been, she's had four healthy children. And although she was tired after the fourth, it's not like her illusions had been shattered or anything. She still believed that raising a family, a big family, raising children was an innately noble thing to do. And I think that if we lose that belief, if we as a society decide otherwise, uh, we're kind of doomed. But it seems like in this day and age, we can't really maintain the idea of the nobility of family without also acknowledging the other side. Yeah. The deep yeah. undercurrent of horror. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>